Thanks for your interest in Emmanuel Baptist. Here at Emmanuel, we believe in the one and only authoritative text for guidance, the Holy Bible. We pray that this sermon will speak to your heart and open your eyes to the glory of God. Make sure you plug into your local church and get to know others that love the Holy Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like you. Thanks again, and God bless you guys. I'm sure you've heard it said before, something like, now that is revolutionary. Revolutionary. It refers to something that is so radically new that it kind of overturns something that used to be done. It's a whole different way of looking at something or doing something. We could think of all different kinds of examples, couldn't we? Obviously, a very obvious one is the computer age we live in. That has been an absolute revolution. That has been revolutionary, hasn't it? That has changed the way of life and way of living for all of us radically. It is hard to go back 25 years and think how we used to live. It's incomprehensible in so many different ways. Okay? There's been lots of revolutionaries and revolutions. We could think back in some sense to the French Revolution, a lot of things going on at the time, a lot more assertion of people's liberty, not being oppressed by a monarchy or a government, a lot more human rights and things like that that have been revolutionary at different times. But revolution, that word means literally something that goes around another object, doesn't it? Having a revolution, like being in an orbit. In history, as most of you know, may, most people believe that the sun orbited the earth, that the earth was more of the center. In fact, there's a guy named Ptolemy that believed the earth was the center of the universe. That's what most people thought. We were it, we were the center of everything. Then Copernicus came around, <laughs> came around, and uh, sorry, that was not even intentional, believe it or not. But now the Earth is seen to be revolving around the Sun, and does its revolutions. Many people struggled to accept this. It wasn't until Galileo came around and really tried to prove it through this telescope in a way to show that this was indeed true. But there was. It was such a revolution, literally. That's kind of where we get the word from, a revolution. It's so overturned something because now we understand something different going around something else. We didn't understand that before, okay? A revolution. We think about humanity and the world, the system that we live in. Everybody knows what to expect in this world. As we go about our daily affairs, we know how the world works. In fact, we could say in some sense, we know how the game works, and we learn how to play the game. Jesus comes along, teaches us, and shows us that there must be a revolution of thought and ways, a whole new way of thinking and having different values. And as Jesus comes and teaches the kingdom, he says, blessed are the meek. That is indeed revolutionary right there. As Jesus comes, he in some says there's a new game in town. The kingdom of heaven has now come. And it's going to feel very strange at first. In fact, it's going to feel like you're losing the game. But really, in the end, you will win the game if you play this game now by the rules of the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus is saying you used to play the game of life with power and for power to gain advantage, to identify the weaknesses of your opponent and to capitalize on them. But now in this new game, this revolution, you must choose now to forfeit your power, to forfeit glory and position and choose not to take advantage of others but to serve others and so become meek. In fact, Jesus says, this is the only way that you'll ever see the kingdom of heaven in its fullness. Do not find that Jesus is indeed upsetting your life. He does this all the time, doesn't he? He messes with us intentionally and purposefully so we learn these things. One of the things where he's trying to teach us is to learn meekness. A lot of things that you are frustrated with in your life are there purposefully to teach you how to be meek. And when you resist the king, you resist his ways, he lovingly but assuredly helps you continue to learn that this is a blessing and this is not a curse. Our task as ambassadors for the kingdom is to show that the world that ultimately Meekness is victory. Meekness is victory. If you don't know this by now, you can preach this all day long. You can preach it and preach and preach it, but the world's not going to believe you. <laughs> In fact, they're going to laugh at you. The only chance we have is to live this out. If we don't live this out and actually show what meekness really looks like, the world will never know. This is not just about preaching these beatitudes about how we live our lives. Blessed are the meek. It doesn't say, blessed are those who talk about meekness, who preach meekness. Blessed are the meek because the world needs to see this. And two things are going to happen. First of all, we need to recognize that these Beatitudes, again, as we've talked about, are all linked together. They're one sermon. They all go together. Again, you cannot individualize them and isolate them on their own. One leads to the next. It's like a chain, isn't it? And do you all know where the chain ends? Anybody know the last one? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We could add in there because of previous Beatitudes, because of you showing meekness. When that happens, when people laugh at you and scorn you and persecute you because you're being meek, rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. So the world needs to see this demonstrated and what was going to only happen to us most time is that we are going to be scorned and mocked and despised. Now, some people are going to pay attention and they're going to be saved. And you don't know which ones. It could be your coworker. It could be your cousin who loves to mock you when you have family reunions. It could end up being like verse 16. Let your light shine before others. Let your meekness emanate from you so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So sometimes we can get the tar beat out of us. Sometimes literally, sometimes metaphorically. 
But then others we don't know about are going to see that meekness and somehow God's going to use it and say, this is what my son is like. My son is meek. And now we, being sons of God, show in some sense what the true son of God is like in being meek. So today we're going to talk about just simply what does it mean to be meek? I think we have to talk about that a little bit. And then what is the promise here about those who inherit the earth? What does that mean? So first of all, let's talk about what it means to be meek. This is a complicated concept really to think about. So um, break it down in two aspects here. First of all, just having a a proper self-perspective, very important, and then looking at having this disposition. And this disposition will flow out of this perspective we need to have of ourselves. So self-perspective. Our culture is really good at taking selfies, Many people are concerned about what they look like. A lot of people don't take selfies unless they look kind of good, right? One thing our culture is not good at is looking at what's beneath the appearance. Who am I at the core of my being? Not just what I look like in my face, in my body, and all these features outside of me, but who am I in my essence? And as a disciple of Jesus, our self-perspective is not determined by the world, what people think of us, but it's determined by the nature of the kingdom, the nature of the king. Meekness. You have to understand this, first of all, in terms of what is the kingdom like? First century of Jesus' time, kingdom was a, that word or concept was a volatile word. You had to be careful if you were in a little group in Jerusalem and you were talking about kingdoms, because people might think that you're a revolutionary that you were trying there to upstart the kingdom, which meant Rome. Rome was the kingdom, and it was about power. Rome was not walking around and talking about and exhibiting meekness. They were showing power and authority. And most people today, they cowered before Rome and their army and their empire. They wanted nothing to do with Rome. Rome had been in town for quite a while. 63 B.C., Pompey came to town, went in the temple, knew the temple himself, and they were the dominant power in town. Now you got Herod. Herod was the client king, and Herod said every day, how high can I jump for you, Mr. Caesar? I'll do anything you want me to do. Everyone feared the king and the kingdom. Israel greatly desired to be freed from this oppression. And sometimes there were Jewish revolutionaries that would come on the scene and say, hey, join us, get your little swords because we're going to overthrow and now we're going to put ourselves in power. And they, in some sense, in their mind, had the Old Testament scriptures behind them because the Old Testament scriptures and prophecies foretold that Jews, Israel, would rule the world and there would be a king, the son of David, who would be that king. And this is how they went about it. And they tried to use worldly power to gain this. Peter wasn't exactly a revolutionary, but he certainly acted like one. When they came to arrest Jesus, Peter says, a sword. (laughs) I love to use swords because they're about power and authority. And he cut off the ear of Malchus, right? To show the authority that he wanted Jesus and the other disciples to have. In Romans 13, Paul talked about the sword and how Rome and government has the sword and they don't have it in vain. 
And it's very easy for all of us to think in terms of power and authority, even as followers of Jesus. And this is why so many people, when they followed Jesus back then, and they follow Jesus today, are sorely disappointed in Jesus. Jesus does not seem to give us the lightning from heaven that we want. To just kind of intervene and show indeed that he really is king and that what we are doing as Christians really is right. Jesus doesn't really seem to back us up with great power and authority and demonstrate that he indeed is the truth. Because people are looking for earthly expressions of power. And that's kind of what we know, right? And this is how many people think about the kingdom. But the kingdom of heaven is different. It is the spiritual rule of God. It's a whole different dimension. It doesn't use earthly weapons and earthly tactics. Not trying to intimidate people and give threats and oppress people. There is power, amazing spiritual power, and it is found in meekness. You wouldn't convince a Roman soldier of this. <laughs> but Jesus is trying to convince his disciples that there is power in meekness. Always temptation for us, again, to change the nature of the kingdom because we want the kingdom to be full of power and authority that makes us look strong and authoritative to the world. And this is how sometimes we as Christians are tempted to engage the world with kind of an earthly platform of power. But again, remember this progression of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Our self-perspective is based on, as I stand before the great king, I am empty, I am powerless, and I am bankrupt. And that's now, not only has I see myself with God, but that's how now I see myself with others. A great counterexample would be the Pharisees, right? They engage with people in trying to assert themselves, and they want people to show deference to them and how much power and authority they had supposedly under God. Oh, great Pharisee, hmm. let me get out of your way. There is none like you. As the Pharisees would pray around their spirituality to vindicate themselves, they thought that others should defer to them, that certain deference was owed to them because of who they were. But again, we recognize, first of all, who we are before God, and we recognize that that now informs how we see ourselves before others. Before you, O oh God, I am powerless. I have nothing on you. And now that translates now to others. I now am not going to lift myself above you. I don't have more righteousness than you. I'm not better than any, what you might think I am. I am just like you. This is our perspective that we need to have. This is meekness. And so this whole idea of being poor in spirit translates to others. This is why it can't be a Sunday thing. We come to church and say, Lord, I'm so bankrupt, I am nothing. And we walk out the doors and then we begin to assert ourselves. We're always before God. We're always before him. We recognize how he sees us. And now we know how to see ourselves with others. Can you make that step? Can you make that transition now before others?
actually, in some sense, it's pretty easy to do it before God. But to do it before others, when they don't treat us right, we don't think they're showing respect to us, I think it's kind of hard. Meekness, respect because of the nature of the kingdom, but also because the king of the kingdom. The son of David is here. The king has come. Of course, the king always defines the kingdom. He shows us what the citizens of the kingdom ought to be like and what they ought to do. And Jesus, again, just doesn't teach these beatitudes. He is a display of them. A lot of times the world will say that meekness thing that Jesus taught, that's for old ladies. That's for people in the church. That's not how you really engage the world. I mean, if you're going to be meek, you can't get anywhere in the world, right? I bet many people have told that to you in different spheres of life, that this is the way you've got to assert yourself. You've got to put yourself out there, and you've got to show that you are something or somebody if you're going to advance in life. In fact, the Greeks and the Romans really thought this to be a vice. This was wickedness. This was getting in the way of building a great society. We've got to really understand who we are and assert that together as a community if the community, the nation, is going to become stronger. Very clear that Jesus does not demonstrate the power as the world understands it. Again, what he is doing seems so contrary to the world. Look at the disciples he is picking. In the world's eyes, they are a bunch of losers. His power base, again, is not Jerusalem. And look at who he routinely engages with and blesses. He blesses these sinners and he blesses children. Those weak people. What kind of political power base is that? You've got to have intimidation. You've got to have some violence to back up what you are about. In Matthew 11, 28 through 30, we get a great description of the king, Jesus. He says here, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Who is Jesus for? He is for those who are tired, just wore out. Who would be wore out? Who's tired? They say, I'm tired and wore out. I work all week long. I'm tired. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking again about the Pharisees because they like to make up all kinds of rules. In fact, what goes on here in Matthew chapter 12 is talking about the Sabbath. Pharisees had all kinds of rules for Sabbath, which you could and could not do. And they loved getting after people, saying, you should be doing that on the Sabbath. And they had all these different rules for all different aspects of life. And people were saying, all this is what you've got to do to please God? And they're like, we can't do it. We're tired. The Pharisees say, I don't know what's wrong with you. It isn't so hard. We're doing it. In fact, it says in Matthew 23, verse 4, that what the Pharisees do is they tie up burdens on people and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. The Pharisees have no problem putting burdens on themselves. 
And they think they're doing a great job building them because they feel very, very strong. But they put those same burdens on other people. And as they put those burdens on other people, they watch people collapse. And they say, would you move out of the way? I got spiritual business to do. I'm going to the temple. And they'll step right over you. They don't care. They see you as weak. They think they're the strong ones. How's this contrast with Jesus? Much different, right? I am gentle. That's the same word for meek here. I am meek and I'm lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. So what's the difference? Does that mean Jesus has no demands? That's really easy to follow Jesus? Uh, no. <laughs> you read the Gospels, that's certainly not true. There is a yoke. And if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to let Jesus put his yoke on you. That's restraining, isn't it? A yoke restrains you. You can't just do whatever you want to do. You've got to follow Jesus. But what Jesus does, in contrast to the Pharisees, is Jesus says, hmm, that is tough. Let me get in the yoke with you. And I will bear my burdens, my commands with you. And I will lift them with you. That's what Jesus does. He is gentle, he is meek, and he is lowly in heart. If you understand that, if you understand that Jesus is with you in that yoke and he is bearing that with you, what does that mean how you treat others? If you understand the great king is choosing to get in the yoke with you, would that make you a rough person to deal with? Would that make you coarse, impatient, demanding, demeaning, threatening? It'd be a little humbling, wouldn't it? That Jesus, my Savior, is with me, bearing this burden. See, who we are has to be defined by the king of the kingdom. Blessed are the meek because the king is meek. The king is meek towards us. That leads now into our disposition. These are things that begin to characterize us as followers of Jesus and taking on his attributes. This is our character now. This is what we are inclined to do and to be like. Number one, it means we have a proper submission of our strength to the Lord. A proper submission of our strength to the Lord. Everybody here in this room this morning and I mean absolutely everybody here, and I see who's here. Everybody here is strong, very strong. I'm not talking about muscular power or something like that. There's all different kinds of strength. Think about the word potent. Potent means powerful. You think of potency, right? Think about what's the potency of the sweet tea in the South? It's strong. It's powerful because it is potent, Okay. So God gives potency, or we get the word potential, right? Potency, potent, potential. God gives strength, great potential to each person. We don't know how they're going to use it, but he gives them great strength. It might be physical strength. And sometimes it's great to have strong people around when you've got to lift something, right? Sometimes people are strong in their minds as far as being able to think and reason and remember 
Some people are very strong in their will in a good way. Tough things don't get them down, and they are resolved and, and are determined. Some people are strong when it comes to making money, solving problems, uh, being good at relationships, speaking publicly. There is a strength that they have. All people have strengths. What we need to do is to offer all of our strength that the Lord has given to us, and we offer them back to the Lord in submission to Him. What this means for meekness is you don't demonstrate your strength in ways that you want to. You submit your strength to the Lord and say, Lord, you gave these to me, and now you demand from me that I use these strengths in the ways that you want me to. Just because I have them doesn't mean I'm free to use them as I want. They must be brought under discipline. And this is a key aspect of understanding meekness. You discipline yourself and the strength that you have from God. You must know how to put a bridle on your body, your mind, your will, and your mouth so that you do and act only as the Lord wants. This is self-restraint. You know what? You just might know something more than somebody else. But do you have to demonstrate to them? Do you have to exhibit that strength? Do you have to demean them and show them how much you know and how much they don't know? Do we have to show perhaps we are superior in some areas than others? Do we have to demean others? Do we have to take up from others what we want because we are superior in some area in our strength? How are we going to use those things? I think about this, I think of being a police officer. Police officers have a lot of strength, a lot of power. They have authority to use force. If necessary, deadly force. They can put you behind jail. They can put you in prison in some sense, ultimately. That's a lot of power, a lot of strength, right? But they have to use it wisely. They have to know and assess a threat that might be against them or against somebody else and be able to accurately analyze that because if they misjudge that threat, they could be liable. They could be in danger of breaking the law. And so they have to assess the situation, know how much force to use. You can't just walk around, just shoot anybody you want, right? You have to know, restrain yourself and know how and when circumstances to use that strength. And so it goes for us as followers of Christ. We may have lots of gifts, lots of abilities, lots of strengths. We have to know how to put them in service to God in just the ways he wants. Just because we have some things and other people don't have them doesn't mean we're better or we're superior or we need to exhibit that over them or against them. Second of all, and this ties into that one, we need to learn how to defer and deflect for the good of others instead of for the good of ourselves. Defer and deflect for the good of others. So meekness means we lower ourselves before others not trying to be over others. Instead, we want others to be seen, others to get glory. We want others to go first. We don't want to embarrass others in front of people. 
we don't need to show how we're right and somebody is wrong and make a big deal out of it. Much of the time it comes down to the need to defend ourselves. Because of our sinfulness, again, we have a strong need to want to protect our identity and our reputation. If someone misjudges us, has a false understanding, or thinks less of us in our minds, we think, time to defend the castle. Time to attack. How dare they do this to me? Time to hire a lawyer. Time to get this right. See, part of this is not being easily offended. That's meekness. Moses, in Numbers chapter 12, was attacked and manipulated by Aaron and Miriam, brother and sister. I like that one. They got tired of Moses having kind of all the glory all the time. And they said, Has not, does not the Lord speak through us as well as Moses? How come Moses is so great and so exalted? Verse 2, it says the Lord heard that. Not a good thing. So what we'd say today is they had to come to Jesus' meeting. <laughs> so the Lord brought them all out together, and the Lord tells Aaron and Miriam, I have chosen Moses to have this special position. I speak to him face to face. I don't do that with you. Yeah, I, I speak to you. You do speak for me. But you don't speak in the same way as Moses does because I have given him a privileged position. But in that passage, it says, verse 3, that Moses was very meek, more than all the people on the face of the earth. It's interesting, that passage, nowhere does Moses confront and defend himself against his sister and his brother. The Lord just takes care of it. No need for him to step in and defend himself. Our king, again, shows us the kingdom in no greater example than when he was nailed to the cross and gave up his right to defend himself. That is meekness. There are worldly ways to get ahead of people, but we ought to defer to others so that others go before us and get many times what we want for ourselves. See, again, when we're poor in spirit, that means we don't make demand from others. And when we show meekness, we don't make demand of others towards us. Thirdly here, we seek to defer when possible, but not without boundaries. To many, meekness is not impressive. I don't think anybody aspires to have meekness on their tombstone. To many, it's just simple niceness, which means it's understood to be flabby, mushy, have your head down all the time, peace at all costs, and you're an easy pushover. That's far from the truth. Jesus does want us to love truth, to proclaim truth, and defend truth. But when we are threatened or attacked, or perhaps even have a legitimate case of justice, our first instinct needs to be, if possible, to defer. Not to get hostile, not to be vengeful, and willing to suffer loss. 
But sometimes boundaries have to be placed. We have to ask ourselves, what is at stake? What are the consequences here if I don't say something and do assert the truth? Most of the time, we have to lay down our power and our rights. You know, we are told in Scripture that we can be angry, right? So we have the right to be angry. But how often are we legitimately righteously angry? And that's the only way that we can be angry. Probably not too many times. So in some sense, we do have the right to be angry. But most of the time, we're not going to be righteously angry. So be careful to defaulting to this. Same thing with meekness. We do have a right sometimes to assert ourselves because of the truth and to set boundaries. But most of the time, we're probably usually playing to our ego. But we do have to say there is a time for boundaries. And our culture is getting a lesson in this right now. Because for too many times, instances of abuse, injustices have been hidden behind closed doors. And people have collaborated together, organizations, systems have collaborated together and say, let's just be quiet about this. And that is dead wrong. Fortunately, many different organizations, including many denominations and churches, are recognizing and acknowledging now when abuse has happened. And when it comes to abuse, we don't cover one another that way. We expose. We don't play games with this. There's a time to have boundaries. And when people go against the truth and they so violate another person, we ought to expose that. We don't play hidden secret games not as disciples of Jesus. So now let's ask the second question. What does the promise of inheritance mean? Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, first of all, we've got to think about who Jesus was speaking to. And he was speaking to his disciples who are Jewish, and so they would naturally think of the Old Testament understanding of inheritance. And that primary thing of inheritance was the land. God promised his people a land, took them out of Egypt and said, I'm going to give you this promised land that I have carved out especially for you, a land flowing with milk and honey. And when Israel was in that land, it was a sign of God's favor. It was a sign that Israel was obeying God. And if they were ever taken out of the land, that would show that they were no longer under blessing. The curse is now kicked in of the book of Deuteronomy. So 722, 587, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, both were taken exile, taken out of the land. That was a show very tangibly to God's people. This wonderful land that was promised to you to show my blessing on you, you are now under the curse. You are now removed from the land. Interesting here, it says that they shall inherit the earth. We would expect as Christians for it to say, heaven, right? They shall get heaven. But here it says, earth. And here the perspective is no longer a little piece of land in the Middle East. <laughs> in the New Testament, that's not the goal. Now, that was just a kind of a shadow of the Old Testament. Now, the bigger picture here is the whole earth. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3.22, Paul says as Christians, we now own we now inherit, through Jesus, the world. If you don't believe me, look it up. 1 Corinthians 
If you're a Christian, you're going to inherit the world. It's not about a little piece of land. It is the whole world. Read earlier from Psalm 37. This psalm was considered to be messianic in the first century, which, which meant that when the Messiah would come, all that was promised in Psalm 37 would happen. So Jesus now here, he really is the Messiah, and he talks about inheriting the earth. Psalm 37 five times speaks about inheriting the land. And the question of Psalm 37 is, who's going to get the land? Who's going to be removed out of the land, but who's going to be in the ones who inherit the land? According to Psalm 37, it is those who wait for the Lord, those who are blessed by the Lord, those who are righteous, those who keep his way. And if you listened earlier when I read Psalm 37, verse 11, it's the meek. The meek will inherit the land. Jesus takes this right out of Psalm 37, 11, 37, 11 and saying, I am the Messiah. The time to inherit the land is coming. The kingdom of heaven is now here. So those who are meek, they can anticipate that they're the ones that are going to be in the land. They are going to have the earth. What this means, first of all, is obviously that if we're going to have the earth, we're going to be resurrected. The promise one day for us in Jesus is that we're going to have new bodies and we're going to be on the earth because there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Only God's people, only the meek will be on the earth. Those who are not in the kingdom, those who are not in Jesus, those who are not characterized by meekness, will be in hell. Only the meek, only the righteous, only God's people will be on the earth. And that means, second of all, that we will be exalted. We will be exalted. This is what you live for. Because right now in this earth, we have to be meek, and hopefully it's our joy to be meek, but other people are going to look at you and see weakness, and they're going to take advantage of you. And sometimes, under God's leading, you have to let people take advantage of you. Now, I did say there were boundaries, right? That's true. But sometimes, you let people get the upper hand over you. And you say, now what? Well, what am I going to do? Well, guess what? One day, you're going to be exalted. One day, the earthly, uh, the demonic rulers and powers... And unbelievers, when Jesus comes back, you are going to be vindicated. You see, when Jesus comes back, that's his ultimate vindication because all the earth is going to see him and then Jesus is going to raise us and bring us with him and the whole world is going to see us and say, guess what? Meekness really was right. Meekness really does pay off because only the meek inherit the earth and we will be exalted. Your meekness in your relationships right now in how you conduct yourselves, will be exalted one day. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith in your trials, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns... 
He is going to praise you and give you glory in front of everybody else. That'd be amazing. Jesus is going to lift you up and say, look at my disciple. They really suffered on earth because they followed like me. They were meek. They gave up their advantages and the privileges like I did. And now look at them. And I praise you. And I give you glory. And Jesus will do that for those who are his. And you're worried about your relative? You're worried about your boss? You're worried about people who know you? How would you like to have Jesus testify for you in court that you indeed are true in who you are and that you've been faithful to him? That will be all on display when Jesus comes back. This meekness deals with all aspects of life, but probably the thing that's most emphasized here by Jesus really is being a faithful representative of Jesus and the gospel. Speaking up for Jesus, not being shamed of the gospel. The meekness is so necessary to do that because the world mocks us as Christians. It's kind of a hard message, isn't it? You know, Jesus, let me tell you about Jesus. He lived 2,000 years ago, and, and God put him on the cross and slaughtered him like a sacrifice. And because of his sacrifice and the blood that he shed, now we can be forgiven of our sins. Now, I know you know that story. It's a precious story to you. But now take a person who doesn't know anything about the Bible. And you're talking about some guy 2,000 years ago that was put on a cross and had to bleed so that we could be forgiven of some sins before some God? That doesn't make any sense. And Paul recognized that in 1 Corinthians 1. He talked about the folly of the cross. It's such folly to the world. They have all, the world has always mocked Christians because you believe in a God that demands a payment of blood to cover sins? And to save us, you had to kill somebody to be our Savior? And that is the folly that we believe in. And in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that the weakness of God is stronger than men. You say, wow, God's weak? Is God really weak? We can ask the question, is meekness weakness? Yes and no. No, there is a strength to being meek. But yet at the same time, you will perceive by the world to be very, very weak. And that's what God did through the cross. By the world, he was perceived to be very weak. But God showed that through this event that the world mocks, that God has saved his people from their sins and they'll be saved from the grave and from death. And this is what Jesus says to us. Will you accept that as my follower or will you be ashamed of that? Will you be meek as you send out this message to the world that they too can be saved like you, the death of Jesus on the cross? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that our words and our thoughts will now become actions. 
and more than just actions, that they'll become part of our character. They'll become part of our way of life. Lord, I pray, Lord, as we think about how we're attracted to Jesus because of his meekness, we'll understand what it meant for Jesus to show that meekness. And we'll understand what it means now for us to be that same kind of meekness to the world. Indeed, the world needs to see this meekness from us, Lord. And we live in such a hostile society that is so self-assertive in their words, so threatening, wanting to assert power over others. We live in such a violent culture with words today. And here you have placed us in this time, in this place, to show the meekness of Christ. Lord, I pray that we will uphold your son and show the truthfulness and the beauty of who he is in his meekness by what we do and what we don't do, by what we say and what we don't say. Lord, indeed, we believe this is above us and beyond us, but by your power, by your spirit, we know that you can transform us. Do this for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.